From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. House has passed both articles of impeachment against President Trump. CPR's D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim, has had her eyes and ears on Colorado's delegation. Plus, what might a trial look like in the Senate? We'll ask Michael Bennett of Colorado, who's also running for president, why he's still in the race, plus what he sees as an important outdoors bill whose future is uncertain. I've been working on this for the last 10 years. It's 400,000 acres of public land, 70,000 acres of wilderness. Then, inspired by a local survivor, a state lawmaker wants to ensure Colorado's kids learn about the Holocaust. The awareness has been lost, and I find that alarming, especially in this atmosphere where we see increased hate crimes a rise in white supremacist activity. This is Colorado Matters live tonight from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the last hour, Colorado's representatives did what everyone expected them to do. They voted on impeachment and along party lines. The four Democrats in favor, the three Republicans opposed. CPR's Caitlin Kim is in the U.S. Capitol at this historic moment, and she's on the line now. Hi, Caitlin. Any surprises at all tonight? <laughs> no, uh, there were no surprises. Um, and as you said, all the Democrats, uh, Diana Get, Jason Crow, Joe Neguse, and Ed Perlmutter voted for both articles of impeachment against uh, the president, while all the Republicans, Ken Buck, Doug Lamborn, and Scott Tipton, voted against. Uh, these two articles, Article 1, Abuse of Power, Article 2, Obstruction of Congress, the vote spread uh, roughly the same for both of them. What did you hear from members today? Well, Democrats talked about how it was a somber day. I spoke with Representative uh, Perlmutter before the debate got started, and he said it was a difficult moment for America. But for him, it was that upholding his oath of office. And I had, um, you know, been hesitant even though there were a number of things that really bothered me about the president's conduct, and I think bothered a lot of Americans, um, this was one that rose to a much higher level, in my opinion, because people's lives were at stake. Our national security was at stake. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that Perlmutter sits on the Rules Committee, so he helped decide on the parameters of today's debate. Now, Republicans had, um, sorry, Republicans had a different uh, point of view for them. Nothing that they had seen or heard uh, rose to the level of an impeachable, um, rose to the level of impeachment. Yeah, give me an example of what we heard from some of the members of Colorado's delegation in that regard. Um, well, so uh, Republican Buck talked about how um, he, he actually rattled off a list of all these Democratic presidents who, and some of the conduct he thought was an abuse of power. But he said Republicans then didn't impeach because the bar would have been too low, and that's what the founders didn't want. So it's this idea that um, nothing that the president has done is actually impeachable or worth impeachment. Indeed, repeating arguments that they've made throughout that this process is all politically motivated, unfair to the president. Here's Congressman Scott Tipton from the Western Slope. The first article suggests that the president pressured a foreign government to be able to assist in an upcoming election. Ukraine received its aid without a prearranged agreement. 
This is unsubstantiated. The second article is premised on the obstruction occurred when the White House ignored subpoenas issued by the House. Our federal courts are the ultimate arbiters of these decisions. In fact, previous administrations, Republican and Democrat both, have dealt with these issues and claimed executive privilege. Republican Congressman Scott Tipton there. Uh, Caitlin Kim, the nation was able to watch and listen to the proceedings all day, but you were actually there. I wonder what it was like to be in the U.S. Capitol today. Um, in some ways, it was just as usual. You know, there were tours going through, but, you know, less people than usual. Committee hearings happened. The Senate was in session and held votes. But you could also tell it was different because there were more members on the floor during the debate. Um, there was more media. There were all these TV stand-ups in Statuary Hall, more photographers and reporters waiting in the halls to talk with lawmakers as they came in and out of the chamber. And then there were also a lot of members of the public watching the proceedings. Um, I was told that all the public galleries were open today. That's not always the case. And I was watching the, the crowd as um, they were having the final impeachment, impeachment vote. It was packed. Um, the mood was serious. And to me, it was resigned. Um, I don't think anyone thought that there was going to be any surprises. You heard the same arguments from Democrats. You heard the same uh, defense offered by Republicans. And the outcome was what most people expected, largely along party lines. For those who watched any of the debates, they may have noticed a familiar face, at least to Coloradans, in the Speaker's chair, Denver Representative Diana DeGette. Uh, she was appointed to run the process. Let's hear a little of that. Members will record their votes by electronic device. This will be a five-minute vote. Is this a big deal for Diana DeGette, Caitlin? Yes, I, I think it is a big deal because of how public and historic today's debate was. Degette was responsible for making sure everything ran well. She reminded me of a, of a teacher keeping all the kids in order. If it got too loud, she could use the gavel. If a member was given two minutes to talk, she made sure they only had two minutes um, with a couple of bags of the gavel. And she reminded Congress members on the floor she was the one in charge. Um, there were a couple of times she reminded members as they gave their remarks um, to address it to the chair instead of sniping at each other. And it was a lot of work, but I think she did Colorado proud, and she did a great job. Um, at one point this evening, a Republican Congress member from Tennessee closed his floor speech by telling get that she did a great job. So, look, there was some bipartisan consensus. And from here, the process goes to a trial in the Senate. The Senate's leaders are expected to negotiate the format, duration, evidence, witnesses, etc. Lots to follow. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. CPR's Caitlin Kim attended today's impeachment debate and tonight's vote, of course, at the U.S. Capitol. And she'll continue to follow Colorado's congresspeople through this process. As I just said, the next step is a trial in the Senate, which is why we'll listen now to my interview with Michael Bennett, Democratic senator from Colorado and longshot presidential candidate. A note that we spoke before today's House proceedings as part of our year-end series of conversations with Colorado's members of Congress. Senator, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with the duality you're living, senator and presidential candidate. You obviously have company, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar. When impeachment moves to the Senate, you'll all help decide the fate of the man you'd love to run against for the White House. Meanwhile, you've got Republicans like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who will be in charge of the impeachment trial, and he had this to say. The case is so darn weak coming over from the House. We all know how it's going to end. There's no chance the president's going to be removed from office. We know McConnell is working closely with the White House. 
it can all seem like a massive conflict of interest on both sides, no? Oh, I don't think it's a massive conflict of interest. I think each of us has a constitutional duty to fulfill. It's an important one, a solemn one. And I'm sure that every single member of the Senate who's uh, running for president will take it seriously. I certainly will. What do you make of words from McConnell saying, you know, I'm not going to approach this as an impartial juror? I think it's very unfortunate. I mean, not only is he not approaching it as an impartial juror, he has said he's going to basically take his guidance or his direction from the president's personal lawyers and from the White House counsel's office. That is a real abdication of his responsibility of the majority leader, and it is a testament to the degree to which the National Republican Party has become Donald Trump's Republican Party. And I think that is deeply regrettable. I, I, as you know, Ryan, Colorado is a state that's exactly a third Republican, a third independent, and a third Democratic. And I don't think a lot of the Republicans in Colorado are happy with what the president has done. But Mitch McConnell is willing to take his direction, which just means the rest of us need to do our jobs. Does this mean you have not made up your mind? What I've said is that if there is no evidence that's contrary to the evidence we've already heard in the House, and the president continues to obstruct and continues to stonewall the legitimate questions that Congress has had, that I'm likely to vote to convict. If the facts change from where they are today, I could change my mind about that. But that's where I am today. I'm very curious if you're having any substantive conversations with Republicans elected Republicans, I suppose I'm especially interested in, about impeachment? I'm sorry to say that we really are not. They've sort of put it all into Mitch McConnell's hands, and Mitch McConnell has said that he's going to act at the direction of the White House. There may be the opportunity to have some votes on the floor of the Senate to call witnesses where there will be Republicans who might think it's reasonable to have some witnesses and therefore will vote with the Democrats to do that. We'll just have to see. This is so volatile. I mean, the, the polls go up and down every day. I expect this to take a lot of twists and turns between now and when we're actually sitting in the Senate chamber uh, having the impeachment proceeding there. So just to be clear, you're not having conversations, for instance, with your Republican colleague from Colorado, Cory Gardner, about this. I have not had a, a recent discussion with okay. Senator Gardner about this. I'd like you to address Republicans who actually see the threat to the democracy as what Democrats are pursuing. The Democrats want to undo a duly elected president um, and that these are not impeachable offenses. The aid was released. Well, I guess what I would say first is that what the president has actually admitted to and what all of the witnesses, virtually all of the witnesses that have testified in the proceeding in the House have corroborated is that President Trump shook down a foreign power to get that power to intervene in our election. And he threatened to withhold $400 million of aid to Ukraine that they desperately needed to defend themselves against the Russian threat that had been appropriated by Congress. And then on top of that, the president, instead of cooperating with the congressional oversight, refused to allow any of the people that to testify that worked for him. The people that did testify, those brave Americans, did it over the objection of President Trump. And 
we need to set standards in this country for who our commander in chief should be. And, and I think that's what this really is all about. That's what I would say. And I'd ask people to consider whether if the name of the president were Barack Obama and he were accused of doing the same thing that Donald Trump is being accused of, whether they would not have impeached him, you know, three months ago. The question that I have is why we have such a low standard for the president of the United States compared to the standard that we have for everybody else in America. I mean, if anybody else on 17th Street in Denver, anybody in any one of those law firms or or banks or, you know, dry cleaners someplace spent the weekend tweeting the stuff out that Donald Trump has tweeted out, spent the weekend tweeting stuff out after they'd spent 48 hours watching cable television, on Monday morning, they'd be me- meeting with the human resources department of their firm. You talk about the polls going up and down, but really what we've seen is that the nation is pretty dug in on this question. Well, I think we'll see what happens during the course of the proceedings. You know, I was young when Watergate happened, but I remember it very well. And I remember it as a very dark time in American history. We were at the height or the depths, however you want to think about it, of the Vietnam War. And Richard Nixon had had been reelected, but had committed the sins of Watergate. And it created an opportunity for the democracy to reassert itself and for us to remember why the rule of law is so important, at least for one moment, to think about the standard that we would like from our elected officials, including the president of the United States. You have spoken and written a lot about inaction in Congress, your frustration, for instance, with Mitch McConnell's leadership. I wonder, though, if he and perhaps the president are merely symptoms of deeper partisanship, Uh, you know, that compromise has become a dirty word for the base of both parties. I think they're definitely, I mean, I would say that Donald Trump is definitely a symptom of big issues that we have as a country. I mean, and not the least of which is 50 years of no economic mobility for the bottom 90% of Americans. Another way of saying that is nine out of 10 Americans who haven't seen a pay raise over the last 50 years. And if I could summarize my town halls in Colorado the last 10 years, it's easy to do it. It's people coming and saying, no matter how hard we work, we can't afford some combination of housing, healthcare, higher education or early childhood education. We can't afford a middle-class life. And it's not unknown that in moments like that, um, you can have somebody arise like Donald Trump because people say we can't possibly do any worse. Let's blow the whole place up. I've been asked a lot of really interesting questions in this campaign. And the, uh, the most existential one was a woman in Des Moines who said, who asked me, can Western democracy solve climate change? And I said, you know, that is a really open question right now. I'd like to go back to your particular duality. Uh, Earlier this month, you said you're following events in Colorado when you're away campaigning. But Politico reports you've missed about 30 percent of Senate votes this year. That was actually tied with Minnesota's Amy Klobuchar for the fewest number of votes missed among the senators running for president. But just for comparison, the website GovTrack says in 2017, you missed less than 1% of all votes. And so running for president has grown that 30-fold. How would you respond to a Coloradan, like one who reached out on Twitter, for instance, who wonders if if you're more connected to Concord than Colorado Springs? Well, I'm certainly never more connected to any place than I am to Colorado. And we've continued to do 
my work there. I mean, my staff has held listening sessions uh, in every single county of Colorado, just as they do every single year, making sure that we stay in touch with the concerns that people have there. I travel back to see my family and to meet with constituents. And um, as you mentioned, uh, my record shows that I've had the least number of votes missed of any candidate in this presidential election. And there's not a single vote that I have missed where my vote would have changed the outcome of the votes. You participated in the first two presidential debates, but have not qualified for the last ones. That seems to be the biggest bang for the buck as far as national exposure is concerned. And speaking of bucks, you sent a fundraising letter that Bennett for America needs to raise serious cash to compete in the early state of New Hampshire. Is your campaign hanging by a thread at this point? I wouldn't say that at all. I, in fact, I, I built the campaign so that it would last until people began to vote in Iowa and New Hampshire. People in Iowa and New Hampshire are less decided today than they were six weeks ago, than they were six months ago, than they were a year ago. They are trying to figure out who the right person is to take on Donald Trump. And they have their serious doubts about whether the leading candidates are ones that can beat Donald Trump. And so, you know, we've hung in there. The field has dwindled. There are fewer candidates now than they've been throughout. And obviously, I was one of the least well-known candidates at the beginning. The not being on the debate stage hasn't helped with that. But on the other hand, the debate stage hasn't changed the state of the race at all either. So I, when you look at where the polls are right now and remind yourself that in times like 1994, John Kerry was at about 3% in the polls uh, today, uh, I'm at two, and he went on to win the New Hampshire primary. And so I think it's just as likely, I think it actually may be more likely that somebody who's trading somewhere between zero and three today in Iowa and New Hampshire can finish well in both states. The starkest difference between you and some of the front runners in the Democratic primary, I think, is health care. You've said that a Medicare for all plan is a non-starter and could lose Democrats the election. Could you give me another issue that distinguishes Michael Bennett from most everyone in the Democratic race? Well, I think that I've got by far the strongest anti-poverty plan of anybody who's in the race. I think there's a reason why I'm focused on that. It's what I saw when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools. And I think that part of deal, you know living in a country where we have no economic mobility and where our education systems are actually reinforcing the income inequality we have, to me, that's what you know, the Democratic Party and, frankly, both parties should be working on. I was very pleased just this weekend to come to an, a, an agreement with Mitt Romney, the Republican from Utah. It is the first bipartisan proposal to make the child tax credit in this country entirely refundable, which would mean that there are millions of children today, the poorest kids in America, that are not getting the benefit of that tax credit because the the credit is not refundable. And I'm just so proud that that Mitt Romney is the first Republican uh, to say that, you know what, we got to do better than that and to do it based on a deal that he struck with me. I'd like to ask you about the CORE Act. This is to protect and expand wilderness and boost outdoor recreation. Uh, your Republican counterpart from Colorado, Senator Gardner, hasn't thrown his support behind the bill. So uh, no Colorado voice on the Natural Resources Committee is pushing for it. I, I wonder if you're speaking with the chair, Senator Murkowski, to move this forward. 
Yes, I've talked both to Senator Murkowski, who's the chair, and to Joe Manchin, the ranking member. And I've what I've said to them is every single county that's affected by this bill supports the bill. The county commissioners in these counties, many of whom are Republicans, support this bill. I've been working on this for the last 10 years. It's it's 400,000 acres of public land, 70,000 acres of wilderness and in, in the San Juans as well as um, Thompson Divide. It includes designated Camp Hale as the first national historic landscape uh, in American history. So Camp this Hale bill is, is, is where many of the skiing soldiers of World War II trained. That's right. And it's actually the origins of our outdoor recreation industry because those guys came back and started a lot of our ski areas and and related companies. So frankly, I can't understand why anybody um, who is elected from the state of Colorado wouldn't want to put their name on this bill. And I hope in the coming weeks that we'll be able to get the rest of the delegation. Senator, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. U.S. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bennett. He's the latest guest in our series of conversations with Colorado's congressional delegation as 2019 winds down and 2020 revs up. Our earlier interviews with Congressman Ed Perlmutter and Scott Tipton are at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a Holocaust survivor whose story may lead to a new law that students should learn about genocide. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Students in Colorado should learn about the Holocaust, says State Representative Emily Sirota. The Denver Democrat is helping craft a bill to make this happen, and she plans to introduce it in the next session, which starts in January. She has a sense of urgency about this. Personally, I feel incredibly frightened for our future, for our communities, when we look at the rise in hate crimes and acts of anti-Semitism. We had the threat against the Pueblo Synagogue just weeks ago. There have been other threats made against synagogues. And just this past spring, there was an elementary school where a swastika was burned onto the pavement. And not, not that you'd have to be to care about this issue, but you are Jewish. I am. Uh-huh. And certainly it's something that has followed me since I was a child. I went to Sunday school. I learned about my history, my heritage. But I don't think that everyone had the opportunity to do so. Sirota knows that Colorado's a local control state, meaning school districts have a lot of autonomy. And we will continue to work with all those interested in making sure that this fits appropriately within Colorado, but also ensuring that this does happen, that it's not just a suggestion. There are many other states who have passed similar kinds of legislation, and it's been done in a bipartisan fashion. And so I look forward to doing that here as well. Representative Sirota says the curriculum would not be exclusive to the Holocaust, but touch on other instances of historical and even current genocide. Her inspiration for this bill 
is a local Holocaust survivor, Fanny Starr. We spoke with Starr two years ago at her dining room table in Denver. In April 1945, she was liberated from a concentration camp, except it took her weeks to realize she was free. Starr, who's now 97, still speaks to school groups about the Holocaust, a warning that some of her descriptions are graphic. She was about 19 or 20 and remembers lying in a field at Auschwitz under a reddish sky and feeling something fall on her. Ashes. The ashes fell. was no hail, was no snow, ashes. What do you remember thinking at that point? We didn't know what is what. We just sat like numb and see what happened because we didn't know what is our future waiting for us. If we be annihilated, if we let it live. Because when we came to Auschwitz, Mengelis, he did the selection. This I cannot recall. Either I went right for a working place, either some people went left to the guest chambers in the Ambola fire. You mentioned Mengele. This is Dr. Mengele, who, yeah. who was a doctor at Auschwitz. Yeah, I, I can see him each time when you're talking about this black uniform. And he was famous for his yeah, just god-awful was... experiments at yeah. Auschwitz. Yeah. What do you remember about being in that line? We were marching to a big warehouse and they stripped our civilian clothes. And after I shaved my hair, not just everybody's hair, whoever came over there in that big place. And myself and my sister, when we were just, couldn't recognize each other, and we were shouting. Her name was Renya, my name's Fella. And this way we found each other. And after that, we lined up and went in a big, huge field, laying probably a week, maybe longer, outside on the ground. And just cry and cry. You were separated from the rest of your family at Auschwitz? Oh, sure. Just me and her. What together. You're, you're pointing to a photo yeah, of your my, sister that's my sitting sister, near us. Yeah. The rest of them went. I didn't know why they went that time. We found out after the war. What did you find out? Who's alive, who was dead, and all the catastrophic things what they did to humanity. Because to be in the camps was to be very isolated. So we it was were isolated. It was hard to know what was going on in Absolute. the rest of the world. You you just woke up. You could go. Days not washed. Days without washing. Yeah. Well, why don't we step back just a little bit? Can we do that? Yeah. You were born and raised about three hours away from where they built Auschwitz. Yeah. In Woj, Poland. To think that home was so close but so far away. What do you remember about your childhood in Woj? What I remember? Be very active. Belong to the youth group, go two, three times a week. 
there were five children, and uh, your family operated a grocery store. Is that yeah. right? Uh huh. And later on, your family was in the tannery business. Yeah, took that skin, and they preserved it. And after that, went to a special factory where they make hard soles for shoes. Hard soles for shoes. Yeah. And your family did well. Yeah. After that, we became pretty good off. Pretty good off. Till. Hitler came in 1939. Everything fell apart. 1939. Your yeah. family was forced into the Jewish ghetto in Woj. Yeah. After the Nazi invasion. You were a teenager. Yeah. And what was it like in the ghetto? This was one of the largest ghettos in Europe, I believe. Yeah, they brought uh, lots of people from small towns. Because small towns didn't have no trains. And... My big city had huge train going to whole Europe. So Woj was, was connected to the rail and, and thus efficient yeah. for the Germans. And you were there in the ghetto for, I think, five years. From 1939 to 1944. And after that, we went to Auschwitz. What was life like in the ghetto? Misery, nothing to eat, a lot typhoids, not typhoids, uh, diarrhea, what they're calling. Dysentery? Yeah. And the hundreds will die daily. The life in the ghetto was no life. Went to work, came home, and was confined. You had essentially a, a slave I job. worked in the ghetto and a shop for tailoring. But I didn't have no idea how to put a needle on a thimble and so forth and so on. Thanks to all the ladies, she was over there, she showed me how to use a thimble. After that, I worked in another place. What I used to make from straw, dry straw, shoes for the military. And we all had bleeding hands because straw was dry and stiff. You would weave straw shoes? Yeah, we made shoes. And after that, I worked in our shop where they brought all the clothing from Auschwitz. We ripped it open. We have little scissors and little knives. Take the garments apart. Take the gold and diamonds and all the nation money from the whole world. That is, clothes would be sent back from the camps. Yeah, from Auschwitz the... brought it to Lodge. And these are the clothes that people would have been wearing to the camps and would have been stripped of, and they were hiding their belongings in those coats. Sure, everybody. It was in the shoulders, every place. We put the diamonds in big, huge jars, the gold pieces and big, huge barrels, wooden barrels, name it, and all the garments that you took apart, you have to select like the sleeve, like the front and the back, and make bundles and tie it and put it in a big pile. What were the conditions like in the ghetto? Tell me about... Dirty. Everything was limited. Food was limited. Sure. 
you're lucky if you could have a piece of horse meat. Do you remember being hungry a lot? Uh, we were skeleton. How many days would you go without food? I was so undernourished, I couldn't walk no more. Yeah. Thanks to my father, he went and bought some a vitamin on the black market. Vitamins on the black yeah, market? Yeah, like a, yeah, it was black market. And, you know, the Pollocks came in and sold some. Thanks to that vitamin, I just started walking. Did you have nightmares? I have today nightmares. Then we didn't have nothing. It was not normal life. We were just scared. We didn't know any minute who could knock on the door and come take us. Mm-hmm. Did you feel human at that point? No. No? No. We try our best to do what we could do. People may hear a little scratching sound. That's it, you. This, that's this is your, that's your safety blanket there. It's just a, a, a Kleenex that you're rubbing. Do you get a little nervous sometimes? This is nervous. It's nervous. <laughs> Do you remember if your parents talked to you much about what was going on? Nobody knew. Either you live, either you die. Did you see the death often, up close? <laughs> you saw, you know, people were dying in the streets. And there was no bury a place to want to take it. People bury the people picked up from the streets and take them to the cemetery. There was no horse, there was no buggy. They made their own thing and they took the people to the cemetery. It was just chaos. They took... Terrible chaos. They, they made a makeshift cart of some kind. Yeah. And Jews did that for other Jews? Yeah, we saw it. It was a big epidemic in large in that time. That was dysentery. Yeah, dysentery. Either you die from starvation, either you die from disease. You left the ghetto in 1944, again yeah. after nearly five years there, and you and much of your extended family were crammed onto a train car. Did you know where you were headed at that point? No. No. What do you remember about that ride? Crying, screaming. It was very full. Oh, terrible. It was in September. And it was cold. Bitter cold. From the train, we went to that big warehouse, and they stripped, and they gave you the striped dress. No underwear, nothing. Just this dress. So it this is at your arrival cold. at Auschwitz, yeah. and you're handed those somewhat infamous uniforms, those striped uniforms. We didn't know. We didn't care. Who cared? We were just lost our will to live. You were not just at Auschwitz, but you were shuffled between a number of different camps. Oh, yeah. So I went on the train. Days. We went back and forth, back and forth, till we arrived in Ravensbrück. At Ravensbrück. Yeah. I was lucky with talking about Ravensbrück. I just somehow, I cut my hand here. You cut your hand uh, between your thumb and your forefinger. I don't know how and what, and got it affected. And they select me to go to the gas chamber. They saw the cut, and you were going to the gas chamber. And he tried, convinced me, I spoke a little German, 
and I just, this is a disease. And I said, this is no disease. I cut myself, and this got infected. I said, you are a doctor. Surprised that he didn't smack me and take the gun and kill me because I was fighting with him. And he let me through, and he didn't kill me. I'll say that Ravensbrück, where that happened, was a camp for women that was north of the Berlin. The women. You also were at Milhausen. Yeah. Tell me about it. Milhausen, what I worked for the V2. V2. Th- these were the German rockets. Yeah. You, ma- you helped make those? Sure. Parts. Hmm. And Milhausen, I went to the ladies' room. You didn't go on your own. God forbid. We was with a SS lady and a German shepherd. And I went into the ladies' room. I saw a, a paper. A newspaper. And when I pick paper, when you take it, it shimmers. Make noise. And she opened the door and dragged me out and beat me unhumanly. She beat you? Yeah. Why would you have been beaten for looking at the newspaper? They didn't find out any news. I was not looking for news. I was looking the day and the year. You didn't know what day or year it was. We didn't know which year, which day. It was nothing. We lived like unwanted people on this earth. But if you caught wind of what was happening, if you saw the headlines, that would have been empowering. And she didn't want that. Uh, it took a second. I picked it up and in a second she was but the door, forgive me, I was peeing and she just came in. <laughs> it's okay, you can say that on the radio. <laughs> My partner was the truth. And she came rushing across. I was curious, saying a paper. So you saw the date? Unfortunate, because she just came in. I see, it was too fast. It's still really painful for Fanny Starr to talk about her time in a Jewish ghetto and then in several concentration camps. She is careful not to use the name of one man in particular. He occupied Hungary, Romania, Poland, so forth and so on. What could you do? He was a massive murder in the world. Hitler. Yeah. I don't want to mention his name. What did you call him? Himakshimo. Himakshimo. Yeah. This means, may his name be obliterated. Uh, yeah, from this earth. In, in Hebrew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is how you refer to him when you refer to him. You know when? After the war. Matter of fact, we were in, in Kentucky when we came to the United States. A rabbi said this, and since then, it's very popular. So you learned this term from a rabbi once you came to the United States. This was, yeah. Did you think God existed at this time? No. I was very mad at my God. We were these chosen people. Why he allowed this? You were mad at your God. I'm still mad at him. Yeah, I'm still not forgiven. Do you pray? No, I just keep it in my heart. Why? That word, why? Why he deserve it? What the crime we commit against humanity. I just annihilate a race. I became an atheist. You became an atheist? Yeah. In the camps? Yeah. Did, did After that, I got married. 
I had children. So you re-embraced Judaism when you became a mom, is that right, for your kids? My husband did. He was more religious. I was born a very modern home. He was more religious. The last camp... Was um, Bergen-Belsen. Was Bergen-Belsen, which the British liberated on yeah. April 15th, 1945. Yeah. It's just approaching pretty soon. Is that a date you hold dear? It's a big hole in my heart. A big hole in your heart. What do you remember about the, the troops liberating the camp? Who, Anything? Who knew? I didn't know. What do you mean? I didn't know I was liberated. The Red Cross came, and she said, you are free. Who cared? I was laying in bed, halfway dead. I just called myself many times, why did you let me live? What I deserved. You thought that living was a cruelty at that point. Mm. It's interesting because I, I think of liberation as this joyful moment, right? Where? Who? I didn't know who I liberated. I found out many weeks later. That's when you realized, Yeah. oh goodness, something has changed. Fanny, can you run through who you lost in the camps? My mom, my dad, my oldest sister, my youngest brother, uncles, aunts, cousins. The majority of your family. Yeah, just five left of us. Five made it out. Mm-hmm. How old were you when, when you were liberated? I approximately, I would say, 22. You say approximately. Is that because I you, just, I couldn't remember. You lost track of your age. That's right. You lost track of dates. You said it. Fanny, I want to talk to you about a chapter that I think is less well-known, certainly than the concentration camps, which is the displaced persons camps. You were there for some time. Yeah, this was so Bergen-Belsen, was the old camp, the barracks, everything was destroyed. After. And we went to, like, military barracks. They had destroyed the concentration camp, and, and you were transferred to this sort of military installation. You were still sick at that point. Oh, yeah. How long were you in the displaced persons camp? Do you remember? Wait a minute. We got 1945, 1948. We went to Israel. So three years Yeah. you were there. Mm-hmm. And what, what was life like there? So you got better. <laughs> Not too many activities till I met my husband. You met your husband, yeah. Zessa. Star. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Jewish is Zorach. Zorach Star. Yeah, it is Zorach Hashem. And he was in the displaced persons camp as well. What do you remember about meeting him? We just sit down and talk, and I was a ball of fire, singing, dancing, and appealed to him, and that was it. <laughs> we fell in love. Did you get married in the displaced persons camp? Yeah. You see this. What is this? The talus. The talus. This is the I got almost kind of scarf-like item that you wear in synagogue. Yeah. Yeah. This is our chuppah. Four guys had four sticks. So this was put up above your heads as yeah. you got married yeah. in the camp. 
And you had your first daughter in, in the displaced persons camp. She just turned 70. She just turned 70. Yeah. But eventually you had to make plans to get out of there. We made plans. We went to Israel. Israel. Yeah. Hmm. My husband's profession was a tailor. And his profession didn't go too well over there. We couldn't find a job. So came back to the camp. Wait, you went to Israel and then you came back to a displaced persons camp? Yeah. Oh, my. And you eventually came to the United States? Yeah. In 1951. Did he land a job as a tailor here? Yeah. He did. He was not a tailor like today. He put a big cloth of fabric and chalk and rulers. I have the rulers, I have the chalk, everything. These items are quite precious to you today. Do you think you could have married someone who hadn't also been in the concentration camps? No. This was my first love. If he be alive, I'll be married 71 years. No. Because there was a sense that he understood what you'd gone through, and you understood what he went through? Mm. Matter of fact, I have a friend who goes after me. I said, sorry. <laughs> Someone was after you recently, and you said no? No. Why? Play. I don't feel like I'm just very content with my children and myself. Do you still feel married to your husband? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Did you two talk about your experiences in the Holocaust? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, very much so. What would you say? That's the reason we start talking, and we belong to the ADL. The Anti-Defamation League. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We went to school, start going to schools. You and he started talking in we schools the, about the we Holocaust. We were the first one start talking in the schools. Here in Denver. Yeah. And after that went nationwide. What year? Do you remember? In 1967. Why did you want to talk about it to kids? We have to tell the people what we went through. You're still speaking in schools today. Yeah. Fanny, what are you most grateful for? today? Grateful I am. I have my children. I lost my beautiful son. Thanks to her. Your, your daughter, who's yeah. sitting at the table with us. She is, and my oldest daughter, and my great-grandchildren, my great-sons. My great Two great sons. And friends gone out. And friends. I created a little group we start you know, gambling a little bit. A little gambling. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, we have to just pass it on our dead time someplace. Have you been back to Poland or Germany? No desire. No desire? No, to Poland for sure not. Mm-hmm. The Polacks were very anti-Semi against the Jews before. Do you sometimes wonder how you survived? Don't ask, you're asking a very simple question. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Ask all of them the same way that would say, I think nobody knew what and where and how. Maybe the will. Maybe he did it. Looking up at God there. Yeah. Or you, you said maybe it's will. And I just believe in humanity. I'm feeding homeless people for Many, many years. 
and I became a humanitarian. I care for humanity. Ninety-seven-year-old Holocaust survivor Fanny Starr, we spoke in 2017 at her home in Denver. Her story, her life, has inspired state lawmakers to draft a bill for the upcoming session that would ensure Colorado students learn about genocide. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.